2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved of the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. This is the word of the Lord. May the Lord help us to heed and hear. Have any of you read uh, the New York Times bestseller, Indianapolis? Anybody? Am I the only one in here? Okay, Mike Whitener did it. Good. Well, Mike, we'll just talk about this book for a little while right now. But, but let me bring you up to speed. It's, it's written by Lynn Vincent and Sarah Vladek, and it recounts, quote, the greatest sea disaster in the history of the American Navy. And in the prologue, they write the following. By the summer of 1945, the Pacific War was churning toward its fiery climax. A new weapon had been born, a destroyer of worlds. During the last week of July, under the command of Captain Charles B. McVeigh III, Indianapolis delivered the core of this weapon, you can imagine what that was, to its launch point, completing the most highly classified naval mission of the war. Four days later, just after midnight, a Japanese submarine spotted Indy and struck her with two torpedoes. 300 men went down with the ship. As Indy sank into the yawning underwater canyons of the Philippine Sea, nearly 900 men made it into the water alive. But only 316 survived. I recommend the the book. It's kind of a historical fiction sort of book. And, And much of the rest of the story details their harrowing account of Survival with little to no food or water, scorching sun, and shark-infested waters. After coughing fuel oil out of burning lungs and and trying to wipe it from blinded eyes, the most fortunate among them uh, managed to swim to an inflatable lifeboat or, or floating nets or another group of fellow sailors bobbing in life jackets, and they held on for dear life. You don't survive in those conditions, friends. For the four days it took the Navy to realize this ship was missing by trying to tread water. You need something or someone to hold on to. And the saddest part of the whole story, I thought, is that some who initially held on eventually let go. They were afraid, fear of being mangled by a shark or, or hallucinations or the sudden urge to look for food or water. It caused more than a few of them to, to strike off on their own and begin swimming in the ocean. They didn't return. They lost their physical life, 
because they failed to hold fast to the one thing that could save their life. And I read a story like that, and I think that is a fantastic illustration of what is no less true in a spiritual sense. Because there is a danger far greater, friends, than four days in shark-infested water. You know what that danger is? It's the peril of sin. That's the danger. And Paul's second letter to the church in Thessalonica reminds us that a day of divine judgment for every human being who has ever lived is fast approaching. Listen, chapter 1, verse 7. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So, so why will so many perish on that day and why are they perishing even now? Chapter 2, verse 10, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Whereas Paul says in chapter 2, verse 12, they did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. In other words, because God created us, we are most certainly going to be held accountable to him. And we have only one hope for salvation in the face of that, friends. It's not found in trying to be a better you. It's not found in trying to be better than the person next to you. It's not found in in creating your own meaning in life or or in deciding there is no meaning in life and I'm just going to make the best of it. The gospel of Jesus Christ is our only hope for salvation. Therefore, Paul says in these verses, in no uncertain terms, hold fast to the gospel and refuse to let go. That's what Paul sternly charged the Thessalonians to do. It's what God, through his inerrant word, charges us to do today. King's way, hold fast to the gospel and refuse to let go. Because it's our only hope for salvation. And if in your mind you hear that and you think, I know that. (laughs) Well, then I warn you, because clearly, although the Thessalonians had been taught in person by none less than the Apostle Paul, they needed to hear that again. And I think we do as well. So let's look at how in these few short verses, 13 to 17, the Lord teaches us to hold fast to the gospel. So that it's not just this abstract idea Yeah, that generally sounds like a good thing. I'm with you, Pastor. No, we've got more than that. We have practicals. We have application. How how do we do this? Let's follow Paul's lead here. First way we hold fast, we give thanks for the saving power of the gospel. Verses 13 and 14, we give thanks for the saving power of the gospel. We're going to linger here, then move faster later on. I want you to notice the contrast between the group in view in verse 12, and those who are in view in verse 13, because it's both striking and deliberate. Who, Paul asks, will be condemned on the day Christ returns? Verse 12, all who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. 
There's a second group, verse 13, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, Thessalonians, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. So the former group is condemned. The latter group is saved. What explains the difference? Think about that. Well, what's the opposite of not believing the truth and taking pleasure in unrighteousness? What's the opposite? Believing the truth, right? And taking pleasure in righteousness. So we would expect Paul to say what? But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because unlike these people, you believe the truth and take pleasure in righteousness. He could say that. That's biblical. And yet that's not what he says. What what does he say? Think about it. Who does he credit for the fact that the brothers and sisters in Thessalonica will be saved on the final day of judgment and not condemned? What does he say? We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. In other words, he sees the two groups. He notices the difference. He recounts the difference, but then he credits the entire difference, not to the Thessalonians, but to the sovereign activity of God. I I want you to notice that asymmetry. Asymmetry, Kingsway. We, not God, are ultimately responsible for our condemnation. God, not us, is ultimately responsible for our salvation. So listen to me, friend. If you are saved, if you are rescued, if you are vindicated and justified in the courtroom of heaven on that final day, it will not be because of anything you have done. It will ultimately be because of something God has done for you. What's that? He chose you. What does that mean? What what does it mean for God to choose someone for salvation? Well, it means that in eternity past, due to no merit of your own, before you were born and had done anything good or bad, God resolved in his infinite mercy to deliver you from the judgment you would otherwise deserve on account of your sins. He he didn't peer into the future and see a decent person (laughs) He didn't look down the corridor of time and and notice that that if, yeah, that guy, you were presented with the gospel, you would happen to respond to it and then choose you. He purposed, he resolved in the perfect freedom of his sovereign will to bring about your salvation, friend. He chose you He chose to make you the object of his redeeming love by uniting you to his eternally beloved son, Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So Christian, if, if in the quiet of your mind, 
When you find yourself observing the world around you, observing other people in your family, observing other people in your work, and and you happen to notice, wow, there's a difference between them and me. And then you find yourself in your mind thinking, what explains that difference? Take heed. Be careful, lest you conclude it must be because of my hard work. It must be because of my self-control. It must be because of my, my spiritual wisdom or understanding or, or my morality or, or my uprightness or, or my family legacy or my superior insight into the things of God or my willingness to say no to temptation. Friend, I warn you, don't be that Don't be that arrogant. There is not a single man or woman in this room who would choose God if God had not first chosen you. Not one. The ultimate cause of our salvation is the mercy of God in election. That is not a cause for pride, mind you. That is not a cause for trying to figure out in advance whom God has chosen. That is a cause for deep humility and tearful gratitude. That's the cause, okay? Now, Paul's not done yet. Consider the means. Consider the means. All this is under the heading of holding fast to the gospel by giving thanks for the saving power of the gospel. What's that saving power? It's got a cause and it has means. Notice how does the Lord affect, that's what means do, his saving work in our lives. Look at the second half of verse 13. God chose you to be saved through means, language, sanctification by the Spirit, And belief in the truth. Two things. Two things. But let's notice something first, and we're going to look at each one of those, okay? When when the Bible talks about salvation, it doesn't always speak the way that we speak. So when, when we usually speak about salvation, we speak of, has someone been typically saved in the past? And by that we mean what? Was there a moment in your life where you decided to turn away from living for sin and turn toward trusting and obeying and following Jesus Christ. Trusting what? That his life, death, and resurrection are wholly sufficient to atone for all the guilt of your sin and make you right with God. That's what we mean when we often speak of salvation. It's a moment in the past. And and don't, don't hear me wrong, friends. Making that decision is critical. It's a matter of life and death. But the Bible also speaks of your salvation, Christian, as something that God is presently doing in your life as he delivers us time and time again from sin and evil, making us more like Jesus, and something that he will bring to completion due in the future when he vindicates us on the final day of judgment making us holy as Jesus is holy. And it's that future day of salvation that Paul has primarily in view in the context of 2 Thessalonians 2. And being saved, not condemned, on that final day, future day, listen, requires far more than having a moment where you got right with God. 
following me? Being saved on that final day requires far more than there being a moment, a mere moment, in your life, in your past, where you got right with God. And that you look back on that moment, no matter what else is going on, no matter what else you're doing or saying or thinking, or other people are saying or doing or thinking about you, hey, don't go there. I'm good with God. I had my moment. Requires a whole lot more than a moment. Attaining the hope of heaven, experiencing salvation on that day, please hear this, friend, requires walking the path of salvation on this day. Okay? Salvation isn't just a spiritual status we achieve at the beginning of the Christian journey. It's what? A spiritual reward we receive at the end of the Christian journey. Which reminds us it's not so much a moment as it is a path we are walking. And that journey, that path of salvation is marked by two things. Here we go. First, sanctification by the Spirit. Okay, what's that? Well, Paul makes abundantly clear, especially in his first letter to the Thessalonians, that personal holiness is necessary in order to be saved on that final day. So where does he say that? 1 Thessalonians 5.23, May your whole spirit and soul and body not much left, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or chapter 4, verse 7, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, it's called a holiness, disregards not man, but God, who sends, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Do you realize, Christian, that if you are following Jesus today, you have a gift that no saint of old before Christ came ever had. What's that gift? It's the indwelling Holy Spirit. Were there Christians under the Old Covenant in the Old Testament? Yeah! (laughs) Absolutely! Absolutely. You guys are kind. You don't always know if I'm going to answer my own question or not. I get it. Yes, there were! But what's the big deal with the New Covenant? What, what, what blessing do we have that no saint of old had? The indwelling Holy Spirit. We live in what now? The age of the spirits who's working in our hearts to make us holy as God is holy. And that progressive work, progressive work, is what the Bible calls sanctification. And unless you are sanctified, friend, please hear this. Unless you are sanctified, you will not be saved. Not because your sanctification earns your salvation, but because the path of final salvation consists of sanctification and requires sanctification such that we will not be saved unless we are sanctified. Which means at every point in your life, Christian, you need to pay exceedingly careful attention to how the Holy Spirit is working in you right now to make you more like Jesus. That's not an optional exercise for people who want to be qualified for eldership. That's what the hope of final salvation depends on. And if you're not sure, or if you think you've pretty much got the holiness thing under wraps and are just kind of enjoying the arrival, 
Well, I encourage you to ask a friend or a spouse where they think you need to grow. I, I hear people say all the time, well, Pastor, God works in mysterious ways. I don't even know what that means sometimes. It just sounds like the thing to say. Well, let me tell you what's not a mystery, where you and I need to grow. Maybe it's a mystery to you, but I bet if you ask the person that is sitting next to you or a friend who knows you well, hey, where do you think the Holy Spirit is trying to sanctify me right now, make me more like Jesus? I bet it's not a mystery to them. So ask them and then ask how they think you can cooperate with his work. That the path of salvation, it's not just a moment, it's a path we walk, marked by two things. First, sanctification of the Spirit. Second, belief in the truth. We're just parking on verse 13. That belief is not a subjective truth, mind you. It's not what is true in my own eyes or a truth of your own making. To believe the truth is to believe what? To believe Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the one in whom the God of truth has most fully revealed himself. And self-consciously so, right? John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if you want to know what is true, what do you need to do? You need to listen to Jesus. (laughs) That's what you need to do. Why? Because Jesus tells us what we must do to be saved by explaining the gospel. So what's the gospel? In a sentence, it's all Jesus Christ has done to accomplish salvation for mankind. That's the gospel. The gospel says that we are sinners. We deserve death. The gospel also says that Jesus is a greater Savior. That where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That he died on the cross and rose from the grave so that all who put their trust in him and obey him could receive the gift of eternal life. And if you don't believe that, not just in the sense of mental acknowledgement, but but wholehearted reliance, if you don't believe that, you will not be saved. As Paul says in verse 14, it's through the declaration of the gospel God calls sinners like us to salvation, to turn from our sin and embrace the obedience of faith. I like that phrase because belief in the truth is what? The faith part. Being sanctified by the Spirit is the obedience part. He calls us to the obedience of faith. In other words, believing Jesus and becoming more like Jesus go hand in hand. You can't separate those two things. They're, they are together what the gospel calls us to embrace, the obedience of faith. So let's review. God's mercy is the, what, cause of our salvation. Okay, sanctification by the Spirit, belief in the truth is the means of our salvation. But what I don't want us to miss before we move on is in verse 14, and that's the final goal of our salvation. Verse 14, to this he called you through our gospel, so that on the day of judgment, you won't have nothing to worry about. Congrats. No? No, what does Paul say? So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
we don't think often enough, friends, about where this path of salvation finally ends. Again, it's going somewhere. It's culminating in something. What is that? What's the final goal? It ends with you, Christian, becoming glorious as Jesus is glorious. Think about that. Who is Jesus? He's the eternal Son of God come in human flesh. He's the second Adam. He's the true Israel. He's the one who shows us what it looks like to be fully and completely and perfectly human. So what's the eternal destiny? The final goal of salvation for all who are found in him. It's the image of God in you, fully and completely restored. That's what's coming your direction. One day, Christian, you'll be morally and ethically righteous as Jesus is righteous. Just imagine that for a moment. Morally and ethically righteous, experientially, as Jesus is righteous. The Spirit's work sanctifying you will be complete. You'll perfectly reflect the glory of God in the same way that Jesus now perfectly reflects the glory of God. And that means on that day, there will be no more apologies, no more confessions, no more tearful letters in broken relationship, no more intentional sin, no more unintentional sin. We will see Jesus, we will be like Jesus, and we will get to love Jesus forever. That's where we're going. So how do we respond to all this? To all this saving power of God in the gospel? Look back at verse 13. Where did Paul start? We ought always to give thanks to God. What's the application, pastor? Of the cause and the means and the final goal of our salvation. Put me to work. What does Paul say? Here's how he puts us to work. Give thanks to God. Give thanks to God. Do you realize how much of the work of walking this path of salvation consists of worship and thanksgiving and gratitude to God, friend? For what? The saving power of the gospel. You need to pay careful, very, very careful attention to what you are most grateful for on the inside. Very careful attention. Why? Because if your deepest gratitude, your deepest joy, is found in something other than what Jesus has done for you, then you have taken the first steps toward letting go of the gospel. You're at risk of not holding fast Because failure to hold fast to the gospel, please hear this, it rarely begins with outright denial. Hey, this morning I woke up, drank my orange juice, and decided Jesus is not the eternal Son of God. There are plenty of deconstruction stories out there on the internet, and not one of them sounds like that. How does it begin? Denying the gospel, failure to hold fast, always begins with diminished gratitude. All that Jesus has done for us, 
just suddenly starts to seem rather ordinary and uninteresting. And if you sense that on any level in your heart, friend, I want to urge you to do two very specific things. First, ask God to forgive you. Because ingratitude is not okay. It's sin. Ask God to forgive you for taking a salvation for granted. And second, ask an older Christian, I don't necessarily mean age, just somebody who's been following Jesus for a while, what have you done to sustain and grow gratitude for the gospel in your heart? How have you done that? And let me just give you an advance warning in case you ask that question, what they say feels rather underwhelming. (laughs) The way that God sustains and protects deep and abiding gratitude for the gospel is very ordinary. So often we, we sense that diminished gratitude as Christians and, and we kind of freak out and we try to read all these books and make pastoral counseling appointments and like, somebody fix my emotional state! <laughs> and you know what an older, wiser Christian will often say? Looking back on 50 years of following Jesus, they'll say, well, a lot of things were helpful, but, but really more than anything else, it was the prayerful reading and meditation of the Word of God that sustained and upheld and as the decades went by, by the grace of God, grew my gratitude for what Christ has done for me in the gospel. Oh, yes, 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 I, I know, but uh, give me some steps. Say that again, Josh. Open Bible. (laughs) Step two, pray, right? For the Holy Spirit to help you see Jesus and his word. And then when your tired soul thinks, I've been doing this for years and I still am waiting to stay with the psalmist, earnestly I seek you. What do you do? You keep on opening your Bible. Because where else could we go? Only Jesus has the words of eternal life. If we're going to hold fast to the gospel, we need to pay careful attention to our gratitude for the gospel. Give thanks for the saving power. That's the first way we hold fast. Here's the second and third. We're going to pick up the pace. Let's go. Verse 15, build your life on the enduring truth of the gospel. Give thanks for the saving power. Build your life on the enduring truth. Pay careful attention to the beginning of this verse. Paul says, So then, brothers. That tells us what? There's a connection (laughs) between what he just said in verse 14 and what he's about to say in verse 15, okay? He's making a connection. He's identifying an implication. Follow me. If the gospel promises that we will not fail to obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, and if the electing love of God and the effectual call of God guarantee as much, then the Thessalonians should not be afraid that the day of the Lord has already come, that Jesus has already returned, and somehow they missed it. You follow me? 
Because what was the fear? Back in verse 2 of chapter 2, Paul's wrapping up a broader argument here. What was the fear? Verse 15 reaches back to verse 2. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. What's the opposite of being quickly shaken in mind or alarmed? Look at verse 15. Stand firm. The book ends. And hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. But Paul's basically telling the Thessalonians, guys, shut up and listen. If you think something is true because someone tells you something is true, but what you are thinking or they are saying does not line up with the truth of the gospel, don't believe it. Don't believe it. Hold fast to the gospel. Trust the promises God has made in the gospel that you won't miss out on the day of the Lord. Guys, it's the whole final goal of your salvation. The point here is not just, oh, oops, tiny mistake. I thought Jesus had come back, but actually he hasn't. Okay, thanks Paul for clearing that up. No, Paul sees the deeper issue. What's that? That they were assigning more authority to some other voice of truth than the gospel of Jesus Christ and all it promises. There's so many voices inside of us and around us, friends, that that do that. They lie to us by, by presenting alternative forms of salvation to the gospel. So, for example, if you feel a sexual desire, you should act on that sexual desire Because fulfilling all your sexual desires is the key to joy. That's another gospel. Because what does the true gospel say? The gospel reminds us that we're accountable to God because he's our creator. He created all manner of desires, including sexual desires, which means sex as created and designed by God is incredibly good. And the gospel also reminds us that all our desires have been corrupted by sin. That's why we need a savior. And so we approach our sexual desires with neither categorical disdain nor categorical acceptance. Rather, we test our sexual desires in keeping with God's word and we submit them to the lordship of our savior who purchased all of us, including our physical bodies, at the cost of his own blood. I want you to notice there in that example how I'm not limiting the gospel to a set of historical facts. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose from the grave. Okay? I'll let you answer this one. Ready? Did Jesus really live, die, and rise from the grave? Yes! Are the facts of the gospel historical realities in the fullest sense of that word? Yes, but the gospel is not a mere set of facts. It makes an ethical claim on your life. There are implications to those facts. So in other words, when Paul says, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that you were taught, he doesn't just mean keep on believing that the eternal son of God took on human flesh, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross to rescue from sin and death. Say it again, class. If you're a Christian, you believe those historical facts. If you don't, you're not a Christian. 
but holding fast to the traditions Paul taught them. First and foremost, the truth of the gospel in verse 14 also includes holding fast to the ethical implications of those historical facts, including the claim Jesus' life, death, and resurrection makes on our sexuality. And I could give a thousand examples, right? All the claims the gospel makes on our, our money, our entertainment choices, the way, the way we think and relate to people of another race or, or culture, all of that is bound up in all those ethical implications in the traditions that you were taught. So we need to hold fast to both the facts of the gospel and the implications of the gospel. So, so why is this so important? Because I would argue that next to losing our gratitude for the saving power of the gospel, the next most dangerous way, typical way, we stop holding fast to the gospel is we get lazy in wrestling with how the gospel impacts all areas of our life. All of them. We get lazy. We stop thinking, how does Jesus' life, death, and resurrection make a claim on how I spent my money last week? Oh, God forbid that it would. I mean, say it's not true. Well, it is true. Chris shared that already this morning as he introduced the offering, okay? Again, failure to hold fast to the gospel doesn't begin with denying the deity of Christ or denying his resurrection. It begins with a more subtle pitfall, like deciding, I think I'll give more weight in my life to what feels true about my physical body and desires instead of what the gospel says is true about my physical body and desires. Do you see that? If it's not losing our gratitude and failure to hold fast that way, then what's the next danger? It's failure to hold fast by working out all the implications of the gospel and the choices we make. It's not about being conservative or being Republican. Okay, when Paul says, hold fast to the traditions that you were taught by us, some of you heard that, we're like, whoa, I'm not touching that with a 10 foot pole. Traditions, parents, 50s, old people. Listen, listen, now that I have your attention, Paul's not telling us to idolize the morality of the 1950s. He's reminding us of two very important things. First, the fact that we must be taught what is true. Notice that reminds us that truth isn't something we construct for ourselves. It's something we discover in Christ as we walk the path of salvation that God has marked out for us. Truth is something God reveals to us. Second, our faith is intrinsically word-centered. Notice how the Thessalonians were taught the tradition of the gospel. It came, look at verse 15, through spoken word and letter. We live in what kind of age? A video age. Do I hate videos? No. I don't. I like some videos. We can learn much from videos. So 
self-control. But God doesn't reveal the gospel to us through a video. Do you ever think about that? How does he reveal the gospel to us? Through a book. A book. Through his word. And that is why, friends, spending much time studying and meditating and thinking and wrestling and praying over the word of God all by yourself. When a pastor isn't talking to you, and there are a hundred other things that seem more important. It's critical for your salvation. It's also why hearing the preached word on Sunday is critical. And why singing and reading and praying and preaching and speaking the word of God are without apology our highest priorities as we gather on Sunday morning. There is a reason we don't have a 45-minute drama. As much as drama, dramatic arts, are a gift from the Lord to us as his people. We spend 45 minutes what? Preaching. Because it's through a book, through the word, that God helps us to build our lives on the truth of the gospel. Think of it this way. Standing firm in the midst of a broken world and having genuine hope to hold out to fellow strugglers in that world requires King's Way that we hold fast to the gospel, not just in our statement of faith, what we say we believe, but in the ethical choices we make. Jeremiah 6.16 summarizes this so well. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. What's that ancient path? The path of salvation marked out by faithful observance of all the implications of the gospel. How do we hold fast? We build our life on the enduring truth of the gospel. Let's end with this, verses 16 to 17. Third way we hold fast, we set our hope, set your hope, on the work God is doing through the gospel. If I were writing this, and I don't ask that to sound arrogant, I just love to contrast the wisdom of man with the wisdom of God. And I had just charged the Thessalonians to stand firm and hold to the truth of the gospel, I would end by praying, Lord, help them to stand firm and hold fast. Is that a good prayer? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, it's what Paul prays in Colossians 1, so it's actually kind of biblical. <laughs> Absolutely. But, but notice, Paul doesn't do that, at least not here in that way. With the Thessalonians, he, he seizes this final opportunity to model through the way he prays a final way we hold fast to the gospel. What, what is he doing here? Well, in summary, he's expressing his abiding confidence in the work the Lord is doing in the Thessalonians through the gospel. Let's read these verses. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. What have God the Son and God the Father working in unity? I love the singular verbs here. If you're a language person, what have they done? 
for you, Christian. They have given you eternal comfort, good hope through grace. That, that's Paul's way of summarizing all the blessings and gifts we have through the gospel. But that raises an important question, at least in my mind. If God has already given in the past, the Thessalonians, eternal comfort and good hope, already given it to them, for which Paul thanks God, well then why on earth is he praying that God would comfort and establish them in the present? I mean, if you read those verses, you almost think, Paul, okay, either he gave them eternal comfort and good hope, or he didn't. And if he did, why are you praying he would do it now? That's weird. Well, I actually don't think it's weird at all if you understand the great struggle of the Christian life. What is that? What's the great struggle of the Christian life? To receive new spiritual blessings that God has previously withheld from us for some reason? No, what have we received in Christ? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every Christian. So what's the great struggle of the Christian life? It's not to receive a new blessing that God has withheld in the gospel. It's to learn how to appropriate and trust and apply and work out all those blessings we've already received. That's the struggle we're in. We need God to take the promises of the gospel and apply them to our hearts in a personal way that meets us in all the gritty particulars of life. So we need God to give us comfort in Christ when our hearts are hurting in the midst of inexplainable evil and suffering. We need God to give us strength in Christ when our hearts are failing in the midst of a battle with besetting sin and word or deed. And so it's so comforting to know And I'm so grateful Paul goes here that God doesn't just kind of, you know, beep, 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 dump the blessings of the gospel in our lap and then say, it's all there. Get on with it. No, what does he do? He cares for us, Christian. Gently, patiently, persistently, God himself takes one little bit of truth about who he is for us in Jesus And with help from his word, his spirit, other Christians, connects it to one little struggle in our life till the day he brings us home. That's what God does. So must we hold fast to the gospel? Yes, but don't hope in your work, friend. Hope in God. He'll accomplish his work Through your work, he'll hold fast to you by enabling you to hold fast to him. But please remember, it's ultimately his work. He's the one who comforts us. We can't comfort ourselves. He's the one who establishes us. We can't do that for ourselves. So think of it this way. Does every Christian need to hold fast to the gospel in order to be saved? Your turn. Yes. So when we struggle or someone we love is struggling, to hold fast to the gospel, where do we focus our attention? On what we're doing or not doing? On what they're doing or not doing? No, we we direct our attention. We fix our gaze. We set our hope on the work God is doing to bring the gospel to bear in our lives. If we're going to hold fast to the gospel, We need to pay careful attention, not just to our gratitude for its saving power, 
to whether we're building our life on its implications, we need to pay attention to where our hope is ultimately found. In the work we do. Hold it fast. I got this. Come back quickly, Lord Jesus. (laughs) Or in the work God does. If you're going to hold fast, you need to pay very careful attention to the location of your hope. Friends, my earnest prayer and my expectation because I trust the faithful God is that he is going to help us and this church hold fast to the gospel as he has enabled us to do so for many years. I think that it's not an exaggeration to say that through many troubles and tribulations we have already come and that if there is an explanation for why this church is still here, It is because God in his mercy has helped us not lose sight of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And my prayer for us, my prayer for you, and I'm going to pray right now before we sing, is that God would help us to not think, oh yeah, yeah, I'm holding fast to the gospel because, you know, I I believe all those historical facts and yeah, I'm I'm good. (laughs) No, my prayer is that God would guard us from letting go of the gospel by helping us to pay attention to our gratitude for its saving power for whether we're actually building our life on its ethical implications, and for whether our ultimate hope in every situation is in our ability to hold fast or in the work God is doing to bring the gospel to bear in our hearts. Don't assume you're holding fast or this church is holding fast. Let's ask for God's help to do that. Lord Jesus, in so many ways, This sermon strikes at the heart what I most long for this church. We want our hope to be fixed in Christ alone. Lord, you have sustained me in pastoral ministry by bringing me back to the simple call to hold fast the gospel over and over again. And Lord Jesus, we ask right now as we sing this song that that you would do that work afresh in our entire church. Lord, for men and women with us today who have never held fast to Christ, would you grant them saving faith to do that even as we sing? And Lord, I pray that we would never be so concerned with all manner of other things in our life or in this world, even good things, that we would neglect the thing of most importance. Guard our gratitude. Help us with our life choices. Fix our hope as a whole people, young and old, no exceptions, on the hope we have in you, Jesus. Thanks for doing that yet again this morning. In your name I pray. Amen.